0: Hello, and welcome to the latest ClearBridge podcast. This is Jeff Schulze, CFA Investment Strategist at ClearBridge Investments. ClearBridge is a global equity manager with $194 billion in assets under management, committed to delivering long-term results through authentic active management. We integrate ESG considerations into our fundamental research process across all strategies. Thank you for joining us ahead of the 4th of July weekend as we close the first half on what I would characterize as a better start to 2021 than we can say about the previous year. The market's up about 15% year to date, the economy is growing at its fastest pace in years, and our very own ClearBridge recession risk dashboard is flashing green across the board. Things are so good that some investors may have fallen into a state of complacency as judged by the low levels of volatility. We would be remiss to overlook not only the current opportunities in the market and the economy, but also the risks that remain as the Federal Reserve assesses the direction of monetary policy, companies struggle to normalize hiring and supply chains, and equity leadership resembles more of a game of ping pong. To help me discern the way forward for the rest of the year, I'm happy to welcome back Scott Glasser, ClearBridge's co-chief investment officer and portfolio manager for the ClearBridge Appreciation and Dividend Strategy Portfolios. Scott, the last time you joined me here in the virtual podcast booth 11 months ago, unprecedented was the most common search term on Google. I know I was certainly using it on a daily basis. Presidential election campaigns were in full swing and a coronavirus vaccine still seemed a long way off. As we attempt to put the COVID-19 pandemic further into the rear view mirror, Scott's gonna share his thoughts on the near-term direction of equity markets while I'll provide my views on the prospects for the economy in today's podcast, ClearBridge Mid-Year Outlook, what normalization Could mean. Scott, glad to have you here in the virtual booth. Welcome. Well, thank you, Jeff. It's uh, great to be back with you. It is good to be back. I was hoping that we'd be in person, but uh, obviously we're a couple of months away from that. But obviously, the the Delta variant is moving across the UK. Obviously, in Europe, you've seen a shutdown in Australia, but good for the US is the fact that we've used messenger RNA vaccines from Pfizer and Moderna, which appear to be much more resilient to that Delta variant with 96% of Americans being vaccinated by these messenger RNA vaccines. So it doesn't appear that the U.S. economy is going to stumble at least into a second wave of coronavirus quite yet. If you look at GDP now, which is a now-casting tool by the Atlanta Fed, second quarter GDP is expected to be 8.3%. And if you look out to the end of 2021, it's likely going to be the fastest year of GDP growth since at least 1984. And if we could get above 7.2% real GDP... It's going to be the fastest since the early 1950s, clearly an environment that we haven't seen as investors in quite some time. The ClearBridge dashboard is now all 12 indicators flashing green expansion with job sentiment, wage growth, and truck shipments being upgraded in May. And it wouldn't be a surprise to me if we had the best output in modern history, which is consistent with this robust economic activity. But what I will say is that strong economic growth doesn't always equate to strong returns. If you look at the best 10 years of GDP growth since the early 1950s, the returns were good. They're around 10.1%, which is slightly above the long-term average, but it's not meaningfully above that long-term average. But the average drawdown that you saw during these years was 12.1%. Now, Scott, with year-to-date returns already above the average that you've seen for these strong economic growth years, what are your expectations for the back half of the year? And Maybe can you tell us some of the positives and negatives that you see driving the risk environment
1: Sure, I think it's probably important to start off with the idea that forecasting over the last eighteen months has become dramatically more difficult than it has in in, in prior years, and that's very much a function of the enormous liquidity, whether it be fiscal or monetary that's been unleashed as a response and as you were talking about the strength of GDP. You know, I just want to remind everyone that that that's unusual and it is the opposite side of record and dramatic weakness that we had from shutting down the economy. So you're getting the opposite kind of effect right now. And it is being propelled for sure, not only by the strength of vaccinations and reopening, but by a flood of, of, again, fiscal and monetary stimulus, I think which was needed but which distorts some of the traditional ways that we think about markets and think about bear markets, bull markets, and, and kind of cycles as a whole. And I bring that up because I think there's a lot of people that, that will go, Oh, we've started a new bull market. We had a bear market. Now we started a new bull market and, and kind of we've got the next 10 years of bull market in front of us. I don't view it that way. I view this as a kind of an exogenous shock. To the global system that caused the bear market and then the you know ensuing bull market that we're in right now. And I think of it as more of a continuation of the bull market that we had been in, which has been a long bull market rather than the start of something new. And I, And that might seem minor, but I think it has more significant repercussions as to what the outlook might be and what the expectations might be the next couple of years. My view is that in that context, we're actually in the later stages of a bull market where the most significant gains are probably behind us. But that doesn't mean that you know, we're in a bear market and it doesn't mean that you don't have still good, good gains ahead of you. And my expectation is, in fact, for this market to close higher than it is now. And over the next six to 12 months, you know, to see the market at higher levels. So, so I think that we continue to be in a bull market, but just at the later stages of the bull market. I would argue that there are some minimal kind of divergences underneath the surface. I always think that the market and the market averages is, is almost like, you know, your temperature or your heartbeat, but you really don't know until you kind of look beneath the surface and think of almost like getting an x-ray, until you get an x-ray of the market, you really don't know the health of the market internally. And when I do, and when I look at kind of internal measures and things that are important to me, like the breadth of the market, how many stocks are participating, I see some minor divergences, but for the most part, I see a very healthy market. One of the other things that I look at that tends to be kind of, you know, we'll either refute or confirm, I think, where we are in terms of, of the overall market is what different sectors are doing. And so when I look at the leadership in the market, I look at the sectors that are performing, if we were at the kind of, if we were rolling over, if we were at the later stages, one would expect that sectors like some of the consumer sectors, some of the more defensive sectors as a whole would be performing better. And in fact, they're underperforming quite dramatically. And so again, when I look at the market outlook in terms of growth, when I look kind of an x-ray of the market, look at the breadth of the market, and then when I look at the sector activity, all of those things for me tend to confirm that this bull market is ongoing. We may be at the later stages, but it's ongoing and that we're, um, we're more likely to have much higher highs you know, over the course of the next six to 12 months. I do think that it's worth pointing out that volatility, which you mentioned, which has been low, and typically with a flood of liquidity, you get lower volatility. I do think you're going to see a pickup in, in volatility both this summer and then into the fall. And I'll reference back in 2013 when you saw Significant talk of tapering in terms of interest rates and a backup of 130 basis points in the 10-year. When you saw those interest rates go up, and you you saw that discussion of, of tapering, which has started, really pick up steam and intensity during that year. Volatility was actually the best performing asset class in 2013. So I'm not calling for that, but I do think it's reasonable to expect a pickup in volatility over the next six to nine months as questions about the durability of fiscal stimulus, as questions about tapering, as questions about inflation in general in 10 year, and questions about the durability of growth. Obviously, we're not gonna spend the next three years annualizing at 8% GDP. We're gonna come back to some normal level over the next couple of years. Now the question is gonna be, and we'll talk about this more, does 8% then go to 2%, or does it kind of tail down to four or five and then three? And then, and what's how long does it take to get this kind of above average growth back to normal? And how does the market react during those periods?
0: Well, from a pure volatility perspective, the summer is notoriously the most volatile quarter, uh, or the third quarter is the most volatile quarter of the market's history. But also, same with your comments, if you look at every bear market low since 1967, basically at this point in the expansion, the new bull market has needed time to digest those gains for a quarter or two before resuming its upward trajectory. Obviously, the S and P 500 is trading a lot higher than what you'd normally see coming off a bear market low, but To your point, I think it's important to remember how aggressive policymakers were in supporting the economy. You know, there's minimal structural damage. One of the most important topics that I get asked about pretty much on a daily basis is market leadership, growth, or value. If you look at the market peak at uh, 2020 before we went into the pandemic through to the Pfizer announcement, large cap growth outperformed large cap value by 30%. Since that Pfizer announcement, which was on November 9th through today, Value has outperformed growth by 10%. And really over the last two or three months, it's you know, kind of shifted back and forth between growth or value. So what's your view on leadership going forward over the next 12 to 18 months? Will it be growth or, or will it be value?
1: Well, so that's, that's a key question. And I, and I don't think that it has to be growth or value per se. And so let me explain that. As you said, over the last six to nine months, you've absolutely seen value do better than growth. And I think that's a function of the significant kind of extremes that growth had outperformed value before this all started. So again, you have to look at what happened before you got the reversal. You combine that with an economy that was bottoming, an expectation for a resurgence in both economic growth, a reflation, which is helpful to a lot of the more commodity-driven value-oriented plays like energy, and then huge fiscal stimulus. And at the end of the day, I mean, investors should think of fiscal equals value, okay? Because fiscal stimulus is money spent on a lot of more cyclical, more heavy industry, uh, more parts of the economy that would benefit from that spending. Over the last month, as you mentioned, you've seen um, you know a complete reversal. Over the last month, growth outperformed value by 500 basis points, which brings me back to init- my initial comment. You can have both doing well, and in fact, it's better for the overall market when you do have this rotation. When you're handing the kind of baton off from one group to the other, the other group rests, and then it goes back to the group that rests to kind of take up the slack, and so. It doesn't have to be dominated by one group or the other. My view is, and I think that the view of most of the portfolio managers at ClearBridge is that over the last six to nine months, the portfolios have taken on a more pro-cyclical tilt to benefit from what will be a resurgence in growth and probably for a several year period. And so they've shifted back towards... I think a little bit away from growth towards a more more pro-cyclical stance, and I think that's the right one. But I think the caveat is that that doesn't necessarily mean you have to sell growth. We've done studies internally where you would expect as interest rates rise that long duration assets, which are essentially growth assets, to be affected by a backup in the interest rate. So if your discount rate is going up, in this case the 10-year, you'd expect long duration also known as growth assets, to do better. And that tends to be the case initially. And we saw that when you had a little bit of a backup in rates. But our studies say that those growth companies, if they continue and come through with that growth, they will do just as well as their value counterparts. So you can own both as long as your growth companies are coming through with the expected growth. I think the important thing to think about is more of a shift from low quality to high quality. So at the initial stages of the rebound, everything went up on the value spectrum. And a lot of what went up were the lower quality, much kind of heavier, balance sheets weren't as good, more cyclical, more more, um, operating leverage in their models. Those went up more than the kind of the higher quality value stocks. And at this point, I think those stocks have kind of made their move And from a value versus growth, your positioning wants to be or should be more towards high quality value. And then on the other side, high quality growth, quite honestly, in this barbell approach and that that the market itself will move and is moving towards benefiting these higher quality versus lower quality. And again, kind of the thumbnail definition of high versus low quality is high quality is better balance sheet, you know, better sustainability of operating margins versus the opposite for, for low quality. So I think that's the environment that, uh, that we're in right now. And I'll just conclude by saying I read a headline the other day that really stuck out to me. And the headline was too late for high beta, too early for low beta.
0: Great. So Scott, can you talk to me a little bit about core positioning and how it can be a near-term headwind as you know, you're seeing strong days for both growth and value? Well, so being a core
1: portfolio, and I happen to manage a core portfolio, I find to be very frustrating these days because we tend to be a diversified portfolio, which means we own growth, we own value, and we own a lot of companies that are what I'll call kind of more sustainable growers in the middle. You know, growing 5 6 7% at fair valuations, they've got some dividend support, they've got good valuation support. In this market, anything in the middle has kind of been forgotten or has not been the area of outperformance. It's more been on the edges, as we've talked about growth, and it was kind of high momentum growth. And I think that shifted back towards high quality growth. And on the value side, it was kind of high momentum, low quality value, and that shifted towards higher quality value. And so if you have a, a quality bias and you're diversified, I think this has been a harder market. If you're dedicated towards growth and you're a growth fund or value, and you're a value fund, I think that it's been a little bit easier to maneuver what's going on in the the overall market. You talked about how value has been leadership. It has, but there's also been these rotational shifts back and forth. And I think that's what we're experiencing now. I think that's fine. And I think that's healthy for the market overall. As a core player, it makes it a little bit more difficult. I will tell you, ultimately, It puts, because portfolio managers can't, there's not as much kind of trend following in the market or sector leadership in the market, it's it's rotating. It does put the burden on the portfolio managers in terms of stock selection and active management. And I consider it a very positive thing For portfolio managers who, you know, are actively selecting stocks and for active managements who can go out and pick those stocks as opposed to playing some broader trend or overweighting a sector like technology, which was, you know, what a lot of managers did in the three years prior or two years prior to the pandemic. It was an easier play then. Now it's a little bit more the landscape and the universe is a little bit more random and it's more incumbent upon the managers to be doing their research and picking stocks. If they do it well, active management, as it has this year, should continue to do, you know, very well compared to passive management.
0: Now I want to transition. I want to talk about obviously the thing, in my opinion, that's been driving the stock market forward here and and has uh, kept the market from really going into its first correction. Really, We haven't seen a 5% correction since October, which is earnings. Earnings have been quite robust. Scott, what are your view on earnings? I mean, do you think we can keep this pace up with earnings revisions and and beats?
1: So the earnings revision data, as you know, is, is quite positive. In fact, If you look at it, earnings revisions, and you look at what that means for margins, earnings revision data is pointing towards a 16.6 operating margin, and that would be the highest margin on record. So companies are managing fairly well, and the question is going to be at what rate do they have to put expenses back on to the balance sheet, whether it be individuals, whether it be inflation, that they're paying more for both products or wages for, for people, And that is essentially the kind of the unknown question. My view is that, in fact, the growth will be more durable than people assume. Part of that has to do with the fact that we've got an uneven recovery globally. You have to remember that while we always focus on domestic economic numbers, the picture globally is because of the pandemic uh, and because of the different responses of the various countries and, and vaccination rates is quite uneven. And because of that, you know, while we're getting good economic numbers, we're not getting the full force of kind of a global recovery yet. That's more on the come. And so I think that sustains growth beyond the initial recovery that we're seeing in the U.S. The other function, which are the other factor, which we'll talk more about, is, there's a lot of bottlenecks in the system. I mean, essentially you turned off the economy and then you try to turn it off, you know, right on. And and what we found was that from a manufacturing standpoint, either we were reliant on parts that were outside the US that we're have, tr- having trouble getting, or we couldn't staff up quick enough, or we couldn't get raw materials quick enough. And that's created a number of bottlenecks. Those bottlenecks have created some inflation that we've talked we we will talk about. But it's also slowed down the pace of recovery. And by slowing it down, it probably extends it for a period of time. Let me kind of turn the uh, turn the tables here, Jeff, and, and ask <laughs> you, because certainly this is one of the areas you spend a lot of time studying and you have a lot of expertise in. So I would ask, what are your thoughts on earnings? But then transition, if you would, what are your thoughts on inflation and tapering as a whole? Because I think that will be... You know one of the central themes, it is already one of the central themes of the marketplace over the next six to nine months.
0: Well, wasn't expecting this, but I do think that earnings will continue to surprise to the upside. If you look at backset in the last fifteen years, typically coming into an earnings quarter, you've seen earnings expectations drop by five percent, and that has been the opposite dynamic really for the last four quarters in particular, but it was really supercharged in the first quarter. If you look at the first quarter, at the beginning of Q1, expectations for earnings were 16% at the start of it. The final result was 52.8%. Same thing with Q2. The beginning of the quarter, expectations were 54%. They've already ratcheted up to 64%. So you're seeing the exact opposite dynamic of what you typically see. And you see this at the beginning of every economic cycle because analysts underestimate the operational leverage effect and how it can supercharge the bottom line. So I I think you're gonna continue to see earnings beat to the upside. I think you're gonna continue to see positive earnings revisions, especially in industries that are more cyclically oriented. Um, So I think earnings are gonna continue to ratchet higher and quite frankly, expectations for this year at $191 I think is too low. Expectations for next year at 213, I think, is is probably too low as well. So I I think earnings are going to continue to be underestimated. In regards to the Fed, you know, obviously the FOMC meeting that we had a couple of weeks ago was a a bit of a shocker to market participants. You, You obviously saw a lot of volatility. It does appear that things are normalizing, but, you know, I think the Fed had a bit of a miscommunication. They started talking about talking about tapering, which I know Powell doesn't want us to say anymore. He wants to retire the phrase. But I think talking about tapering is obviously appropriate given where inflation in the economy is. But also on top of that, they moved the median dot plot from zero hikes in 2023 to two hikes. And I know that we shouldn't put any faith in the dot plots anymore or the projections because of the new average inflation framework. It's outcome-based. It doesn't necessarily rely on forecasts. They actually want to see the data. But the communication felt more like the Fed of prior cycles rather than the new regime. Like over the past six months, it felt like the message from the Fed was really full employment. You know, That's exactly what we want. That's all that we care about. But after a couple of strong inflation readings and higher inflation expectations, there appears to be some trepidation. So even though the markets have shaken off that initial weakness, Markets are higher from the FMOC meeting. You are seeing some interesting things in the fixed income markets. Short end of the curve, twos and fives, they're up substantially. 10 year is slightly higher, but the 30 year is down. And you, you've seen some substantial curve flattening with the 530s and the 210s. And this is really important because what it tells me is that if you look at a 30 year Treasury bond, you're really implicitly working out how the Fed is going to react to multiple downturns and recoveries that we have over the next 30 years. And if the Fed is going to start to go back to their standard approach of preemptively fighting inflation, you can kind of put that mosaic together and and really understand why the curve has had such a powerful move. Now, ultimately, I don't think that this was a hawkish FOMC meeting. I don't think the Fed has changed their view at all. I think it was really just a miscommunication. And I think that's going to become much more clear as we have further FOMC meetings but maybe more importantly, that hawkish view is really a minority view of the Fed. You know, they're very vocal. The markets tend to key off of them. But if you think about who is in the the more dovish camp, it's Powell, it's Williams, it's the leaders at the Fed. And I think ultimately tapering is going to start at the beginning of 2022. I think the first rate hike is probably going to be the second quarter of 2023. In regards to inflation, look, I, I think it's uh, transitory. The markets clearly think it's transitory if you look at the inflation in treasury markets and what they're pricing. But I do think that there's a decent possibility that things are going to get worse before they get better. You mentioned a couple of these things, Scott. The inventory situation has gone from bad to worse. Inventory to sales in the US are at the lowest since records began in 1992. And this is as companies are trying to bring more inventory on, Actively, So it's a clear illustration that supply bottlenecks are still there. Demand is overwhelming supply. Uh, also, you have uh, service inflation now bottoming. They're going to firm up in areas like hospitality and travel. Areas like rents and owner's equivalent rent are no longer bottoming. They're going to start contributing to inflation. So uh, and the last part of the equation is labor. Obviously, you have record job openings right now. You have record quits but it doesn't appear that the labor supply is really there at this point. So you're seeing some pretty strong wage gains. And I think those wage gains are going to continue until we get July's jobs print in August. The reason why I say that is with the headline jobs numbers, they only collect data till the 12th of the month. And even though 25 states are ending federal unemployment benefits for 4 million people, even the earliest state is not going to be ending those employment benefits until after June 12th. So we're going to, have to wait a little bit a while a little while to, to see that supply come back online and ultimately calm markets down because of a you know more uh, higher labor market inflation than people are thinking about so I think we're gonna get a, a inflation scare I don't think it's over quite yet but ultimately I'd be fading it uh, I do ultimately believe that it is transitory because you get inflation expectations even though they have moved higher they're not unanchoring by any way shape or form at the moment and let's not forget You have 8 million people that are still unemployed compared to pre-COVID levels. There's going to be a lot of labor market slack as we enter into 2022 and 2023. And quite frankly, we looked at high inflationary regimes and low inflationary regimes. And in both of those regimes, going back 65 years, you've seen disinflation for the first three to four years of every economic cycle because of labor market slack. So Now, Scott, I know we've talked about a lot of things in this podcast that people should have on their radars. Earnings, inflation, market leadership, return expectations, some risks for the market overall. Are there any things that maybe we've left out that should be on people's radars for the the back half of the year? One thing we
1: didn't actually discuss was the potential for more fiscal stimulus, which would, again, uh, on the infrastructure side, which would elongate the kind of the growth, the elevated growth profile that that both of us, I think, are expected. Um, taxes are certainly the potential for higher taxes, which would be a negative from a market perspective, not necessarily a significant negative, but a negative nonetheless. Um, we haven't really talked about that. And that will kind of play out. As we get more details about what the the bigger reconciliation package looks like, I don't think that's going to be significant. You could get some backup in corporate uh, taxes towards the mid-20s, 25, 26. But I don't think that derails any of the things we're talking about. I think the longer term issue that continues to play into everything we do from an asset management perspective is the industry and from a client perspective, the desire for more ESG-oriented portfolios, ESG, of of course, standing for environmental, social, and governance, and those factors and the way different asset management companies integrate them into their process and think about the world and think about the Paris Accords and net zero and companies moving to reduce carbon, carbon production and exposure I think those are significant topics, certainly being pushed from the European side and then kind of filtering in on the U.S. side. But those are significant topics, I think, for asset management companies. I think that, that we at ClearBridge have been incredibly progressive and forward-thinking about how those are integrated into our process. I think that, that there are others that are playing catch-up, but it has become a part of almost every discussion. Certainly with institutions and much more so on the retail side and so I think as a longer term theme that's a theme we've been talking about for ten years, and only in the last eighteen months has that rhetoric actually talked turned into more significant action and we're starting to see that now so I think as a firm we're very uh, well prepared we're, we're leading edge in everything we do in terms of ESG integration, but I think that's a um, a topic which investors will continue to hear more about and that asset management companies will be, if they're not already embracing it, forced to embrace into their process and and learn how to, uh, you know, and and that will affect stock picking and and sector allocation and, and the like as we go forward.
0: Well, that's all the time that we have today, Scott. I feel like we could have talked for an hour about the macro backdrop but I do think that we've given our listeners enough to chew on here as they head into the 4th of July weekend. Scott, again, thank you so much for taking the time and uh, sharing your perspective. I know I've certainly taken a lot away. Great,
1: Jeff. Always a pleasure.
0: Always great to talk with you. Always great to catch up with, uh, with clients. And uh, thank you to all the listeners. I hope everybody has a terrific and safe 4th of July and a good start to their summer and we hope you'll continue to join us throughout 2021. And as always, we welcome any questions, comments, and suggestions, which you can email us at podcast at Take care. Thank you. Please note the following. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. The opinions and views expressed in today's podcast are of the individual speakers as of June 30th, 2021, and may differ from other managers or the firm as a whole, and are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Any statistics referenced have been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but the accuracy and completeness of this information cannot be guaranteed. Neither ClearBridge Investments nor its information providers are responsible for any damages or losses arising from any use of this information.